You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. My name is Charles Papert, and I aim lights and cameras at things for a living. Charles Papert is an L.A.-based cinematographer who specializes in TV comedy. He started out in commercials before becoming a Steadicam operator on shows like ER and West Wing. Since then, you've seen his work on hits like The Mindy Project and the classic sketch comedy series Key and Peel. Here's my chat with Charles Papert. Who are you and what do you make for a living? My name is Charles Papert. Uh, I am a cinematographer, uh, which is also known as a director of photography. The two terms are interchangeable. A lot of people in the outside of the film industry have a little confusion with that. Some inside the industry, too. <laughs> uh, you're right about that. And so how'd you get started in cinematography? Uh, I was a pretty early bloomer with all this. I was mostly blessed and a tiny bit cursed with knowing what I wanted to do from an incredibly young age. Um, I grew up in Boston, which wasn't exactly a hotbed of production, but there was plenty of television production there, as there was in any city. When I was 12, um, my mom was friends with someone at the local uh, PBS station. We visited a live truck, um, and I got to experience live television production, and it absolutely blew my mind. So initially, I was like, I want to I go into television. And that was sort of my high school, early high school, and then it became about filmmaking, and I always gravitated towards camera. Like all young people, you want to be a director. And I have dipped one or two toes in that over the years. But I always seem to come back to the cinematography side of it. Well, I was going to kind of ask you, because you've, you've written, you've directed, you've edited as well. And I'm sure all of those things play into how you shoot and, and, and serve you well. But I'm kind of curious, what pulled you towards the camera and the lights? I think uh, when you find your calling in life, it's... I don't think you can even put it in words. It's just what you feel the most comfortable with and what, what connects with your inner uh, creative sense. Um, it, it's what you're drawn to. I think that uh, I, I'm a little hesitant calling myself a filmmaker. I hate putting titles on, on these things, but I am a filmmaker because, as you said, I, do, I have done all of those disciplines. And when I was starting out, um, I had to do all of it a little bit. And I also... Now, I worked at a production company when I was um, 21 or 22, a very small one. And they would come down and hand me a script and send me out with one or two other people to just make a local commercial or a corporate and then without any guidance from above, which when I look back on it, it was absolutely ludicrous that I was that young. But somehow I knew how to do it. So I would direct it. I would essentially produce it, I guess, uh, and shoot it. And then bring it back and edit it and do the sound design. And then it would be on air, you know, the next day in the local uh, channels. And, you know, of course, we're not talking about works of art. We're talking about uh, local mattress salesmen or car salesmen screaming, you know, back in the day. Come on down. I love those ones. Oh, yeah, my God. Like on Buffalo, whatever, on football games and stuff like that on yes. Sunday. We used to see those. Legendary. Excellent. I mean, I was young and cool enough to know that it was completely awful. But at the same time, um, it was an incredible boot camp for two and a half years. So. In that sense, I've always, for as long as I've been doing this, I have shot, I've edited, I have written to an extent, I've directed. Um, and I think that ultimately all of that informs my current job. When I'm a cinematographer on something, I approach the material from the standpoint of visualizing it as a finished piece. I visualize the script as I'm watching a film. And then I just break it down into my pieces and go, how would we shoot that? And what is the coverage that we need for the editor? Because I'm already thinking about the edit. That's got to be incredibly helpful to the director, number one, and for the editor, 
they must be incredibly thankful that they're actually getting a well thought out set of shots. Yeah, I'd like to think so. A lot of people just go run and gun. I mean, especially in digital land now where you don't have to actually plan your shots. You just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and dump it on an editor and say, it's your problem now. Go find it. I, I agree. I, um, I can't see how it could be a bad thing doing what I do. The way I've always thought of it is if I can come up with one good way for the material to be edited in my head and shoot for that, a good editor can find five ways that are probably better than that. But I have never had an editor come back and go, you guys didn't give us enough stuff. We don't have an edit. Because there's always that one way. Um, a couple of times I've sort of got, oh, that's interesting you did that. This is kind of what, I, what we had in mind. The director didn't communicate to the editor. And they go, oh, I didn't even think of that. Oh, let me give that a try. That's been very, very rare. And that's only in smaller projects that um, I'm a little bit more intimately involved with. Because I don't, on a TV show, or I, I, I'm more respectful is the right word but um we all know what we're doing you know what i mean yeah there's sort of clear lines yeah and in terms of responsibility and, and and the job you're doing and it's very rare like i said that they they might come up with a different idea that might go well, not quite what we we're thinking of but it's always good you know um so yes i think that that the holistic approach to being a filmmaker has a lot of value and i should say that the time that i came up which I got out of high school in the uh, sort of early, mid-80s-ish, went to film school very briefly, dropped out, and then started working. So I came up in the 80s, and of course, the equipment that was available to a young person in the 80s compared to now, it's absurd, you know, to, to compare. But I scratched my way into getting access to things, um, initially through my high school, and then through the town's audiovisual department, and then, you know, public access cable, Somehow I just, uh, you know, found my way into it wherever I could. And, uh, of course, that was all video. I didn't get to shoot a lot of film until I actually got into the industry. What sort of gear were you on? You were you, in, in the 80s, were you shooting, is that Beta? Uh, beta. Like SP? Beta Max, not Beta Can. Beta Max. Beta Max, and, uh, but not very much Beta Max. That was the VHS and the Beta Max era. Beta Max was the, that uh, competitor to VHS. Right, which lost out in the rental department yes that was a that's a really interesting it's one of those fascinating who wins out and why story because betamax was actually a far superior format mild it was mildly superior but um uh it just didn't you know vhs pulled ahead one summer and that was it for that yeah so it was very you know very consumerish equipment that i had my hands on and that's what's sort of interesting now is a consumer piece of gear that's comparable in cost and accessibility to what i had then like uh, black magic cameras, um, you know, the, the DSLRs, like, you know, a Sony or a Canon or something like that. These are the same essential cost as those home video setups and capable of incredible things. So am I jealous that young people today have access to such incredible tools? I mean, your damn phone. The phone is an incredible tool. You can make a feature with, with a phone. So uh, I'm a little bit jealous of if I had had that stuff then, what I could have made, you know? Yeah, I used to feel the same. I started out in music and, you know, we had to record on four tracks and t crappy cassette things. And, and then there were some digital products that had just started coming in. But once you recorded, there was still nowhere else to go other than you had to press a run of CDs and then you had to hawk them off the stage. Right. There was no digital download. There was no uh, social media. And so there was none of those things. I'm like, oh man, if I, if I had that stuff at that time, I'd certainly be able to plaster the internet with everything. I don't know whether or not I had the talent to pull it off, but I certainly would have given it the old college try kind of thing. 
And uh, I certainly would have had a lot more reach and a lot more opportunity because, again, like the stuff that you can do with GarageBand, hell, even iMovie. I mean, you'd be surprised what you can pull off with iMovie. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm actually would be surprised in the sense that I find iMovie harder than much more sophisticated and expensive editing programs. <laughs> well, it's but, rigid. <laughs> that's the issue. Yeah. Yes. It locks you into a couple of silly things, but at the end of the day, the quality and the stuff you can pump out, I mean, you can, you can pull off a pretty good home video in a way that Absolutely. You know, certainly wouldn't have been possible back in the day. There is, there is an interesting paradigm about the creative process in the digital world versus what you and I are talking about. Because I also was, in the music, I was a musician for a while and we did our, these are little task cam set four tracks. And stuff. <laughs> um, in that in that era, the pre, the analog era, um, not only were the tools more downtrodden, but they were also uh, effectively more of a destructive editing system where you didn't get to try eighteen different versions and then pick one and splice and uh, splice it together in a digital sense, which is drag and drop. Then it may have been a physical splicing where you had to film or re-recording the tape and you'd lose generations. So there was a lot more choices to be made. So in a sense, you kind of had to get it right first, the first time or maybe the second time, but you didn't have 18 times to try it. And I think ultimately there's, a, there's two sides of the coin to that creatively. One is it forces a discipline, which may be valuable, but two, it may hamper freedom, which is not valuable. So I think they're almost equal in a way. You can drown in your footage nowadays. You can drown yeah. in your takes. And that can be really, really brutal to get through. I mean, sure. you don't want to sift through all of it. I, again, I always feel bad for editors who get unbelievable amount, terabytes of footage just dropped on them. Yeah. And no script and no direction through. Right, exactly. That's the common complaint from the editors. There's no script. and I don't know where I'm headed. Well, yeah, I think now I see a lot of people with the creative bug, and I would never discourage them from trying but now it's like, well, we have the equipment, so therefore we have everything we need. We don't need to really spend much time thinking about what we're going to make. We're just going to go make it. And I did a certain amount of that with camcorders with my friends. Um, we would, if I had access to a camera over a weekend, we would just get together and we would run around and just shoot stuff. And very recently, I took some of that footage and edited it. And we were thinking about, like, if only we had sat down and scripted and really come up with something how much better this stuff would be. It was very funny and silly and usually uh, devolved into karate chops and fake fight scenes. Always a winner. Because young men are always going to do that. But I was like, boy, we, we had a lot of uh, intelligence and creativity amongst us. It's too bad we didn't actually plan anything. So. Well, I always say that it's not the cameras that cost a lot. It's, it's not the gear that costs a lot. Really, it's the expertise. I mean, you, it's the old adage. You give a great camera to a, a novice and you're going to get garbage give a novice camera to a pro, you're going to get something at least interesting. Yes. You know, you may not get something pro, of course, but you're going to get something fascinating and interesting in a different way because they know how to make it. They know how to put the story together. They know how to find the shots. They know how to make those lighting decisions there. And, and again, same holds true in music and so on and so forth. Give somebody a crappy instrument or a four track now. And I'm telling you, there's some great musicians out there that are going to do a hell of a lot of interesting stuff with four tracks versus 45 tracks. It's just not that necessary. It's that drowning thing. It's, it, it's having too much opportunity, too much option. Sometimes it, it doesn't let you get the music out or get the, the movie out. You sit there and you tweak it for 10 years and you're not sure if it's good or not. Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. Um, in my regular work as a cinematographer, a lot of the things that I work on are budget challenge. Now, there's budget challenge at all levels of this industry, even $150 million movies, million dollar movies. 
even $150 million movies, they may have days where it's like, we just can't have, get what we need to make this right. But we need $160 million. Exactly. Meanwhile, I'm there on the sort of equivalent of the $10 million thing going, geez, if I only had that. But much of the time, I find myself drawing on my early days, my low-budget roots. Because we don't have the thing that would be the quick answer, I might have to do much more thinking and being creative and finding a more clever solution or three different solutions that we have to explore from all directions to go, that's a risk. Would it work? Um, which of those is the best risk to take? Whereas, you know, spending all the money on it, you know, that, we know that'll work. But in a sense, that's the kind of creativity that I enjoy because it's kind of scrappy and fun. And some of these solutions are so low rent and simple that people might smack their head and go, I never would have thought of that. I can't believe you're doing that on a real TV show. But you're like, it works, doesn't it? You have to work a long time. And in a lot of different situations and see a lot of different problems and hopefully solve them or see somebody solve them in order to sort of have that, that, that quiver of solutions that's readily available to you when you encounter something. And then you go out and you augment it for this situation. You, you figure out what's going to apply and how it's going to work for you here. You have to know how to use your tools. You have to know how you're going to bring your crew together and execute on some sort of a solution that may be simple, but if nobody knows the answer, you're not going to get your day. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the whole balance is we only have so many hours in the day. And a huge part of my job is time management, being aware of time, so that every decision I make in terms of lighting, which, how many instruments, where are they all going to go? I'm calculating how long it might take. I'm working with my guys to ask for estimates and sort of building this whole time management system that's ad hoc for each setup that we do. And that's all cumulative to the end of the day. Um, which is the strangely technical part about being a cinematographer, um, is that you are working within a very specific construct. There's a lot of people that are a little unsure if we're artists or craftspeople or technicians, and of course the answer is we're a little of all of them. And creating a scene visually uh, as a cinematographer, you are essentially given a blank canvas, especially on a stage, where we know we decide what the shot is, well, what does the space look like? How is it lit? Um, that is a, a blank canvas. If you go out and shoot on location, chances are good you're shaping what's already there, either adding or subtracting or both. But let's take the stage for an example. So in a sense, you are, um, you're a painter at that moment. You've got a blank canvas and you can start painting it if you wish. But you're a version of a painter where someone is standing behind you going, let's go, let's go, we got to go. <laughs> we're we're going to lose the light. We're going to lose this actor in, in two hours. Key and Peel. that's a show you did for how many years? Three years? Was that three years? Uh, years? It was five seasons, sort of four-ish calendar years. And that's a sketch show. So you're going to the canvas numerous times over and over and over again with things that more than likely aren't gone back to time and time again. The characters may come back, but right. there was always something different that you were doing. They, they were all little, they were like dropping into little films. Exactly. Yeah. That It really, it was a dream job. It was a, a unique uh, possibility that I really enjoyed to have that much variety during the day because let's face it uh, most people in the film industry have a certain amount of ADD we're, we're a very strange combination of if, if we didn't have the AD a little bit of ADD we don't work in an office because be a hell of a lot easier but we can't work in offices we, we can't go to that same box every day and do the same thing that's why we're in the damn film industry and you can say it's because we like storytelling and all that but the reality is we're basically carnies at heart you know we're <laughs> we're chasing after some like we have to be continually entertained by what we're doing. 
So with Keen Peel, I had that opportunity to not just do something slightly different each day, it's something radically different each day, if not two or three times per day. Because we shot between two and three sketches per day that were incredibly different from each other. Within the same location, in the morning, it might have been a 50s Technicolor musical. In the afternoon, we were faking a 1980s home video with Obama in the same house in different floors. Never boring, always interesting, and a ton of fun. And thankfully, we had all the encouragement from above to make it as creative and interesting and realistic as possible and true to form to each genre that we were doing. Um, within the confines of very little money and very little time. <laughs> of course. Uh, what, what a surprise. But uh, really was a wonderful stretch and exercise. And even if the show hadn't been popular and we still got to do it for ourselves, it would have been absolutely worth it. Um, the delight was that it slowly snowballed into a phenomenon and is still being enjoyed now six years off of the air by sometimes a new generation. Like kids are finding it. Parents are showing it to their kids now in, in uh, the quarantine and their kids are like, what's this? I love this. You know? Well, and both the guys have gone on to do some really excellent and fascinating work. So people are looking back to their back catalog, as it were. It's pretty fun to just sort of go down a YouTube hole of them. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see how many of the YouTube comments have especially the sketches that go dark, which many of them did. People are like, ah, see, there's Jordan, the horror director coming out. We didn't even know that at the time. Oh, now we can look back at it and see. That. It's foreshadowing. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that much stuff going on and that much variety, you're going to the well every day, multiple times. How are you finding inspiration for these different things? Where are you getting your ideas for how you want to light this, how you want it to look? You know, it's an interesting, it's interesting thing to think about the day to day. Um, keeping things creative and different because we talked about how there's, you have your quiver, your bag of tricks. And given the intensity of the environment sometimes, especially in television production, which is pretty relentless and, you know, five days a week and goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks, it can be a little bit easy to kind of go, Let, let's play it by the numbers. Let, let's go to the playbook and do X five, seven J. And sometimes that's exactly the right call because that makes you the hero that you know it's going to look good and you're going to get it done simply and easily. And then you, other times you kind of go, let's just shake things up a little bit, maybe for myself because I want to do things differently, but ultimately it's beneficial for the process, of course. The tricky part is I can only go so far down the road of doing it differently. If you find out the second I start to feel it might not work, I have a very short amount of time to pull it back. The do-over process as a cinematographer, which is, all right, tear it down and let's start again. When I was younger and I got into this, into the union studio side of the industry as a camera operator about 22 or three years ago, I worked for cinematographers that had that freedom. Um, budgets were a little better. There were more days to shoot in. And maybe it was the shows I was working on, but I saw that happen. I don't get to do that now anymore. DP's job has been a bit more compacted. Digital has done a lot for that. Uh, to to place us into a little bit of a tighter ring. Uh, and it, of course, it depends on the show. But I don't get a lot of opportunities for do-overs. So I have to play it a little bit safer than I might like some of the time. But it is fun to keep in the back of my mind to just change one little thing here and there, just to kind of tweak it. A great many cinematographers, of course, will talk about influences in ways that are very uh, admirable and artistic and that will cite references that might go into fine arts and photography. And I do have those. And those are always beneficial. I find my visual references are 
those to a certain extent, although I'm not uh, an obsessive bookworm about seeking out and having, you know, I don't have 40 photographers' books on my shelf that I probably should, um, nor do I go to museums every other week uh, to study. But real world is really my inspiration, a lot of it, which uh, from when at the time I was a teenager, I would kind of take stock of natural lighting and try to break it down. So what is creating that effect and how do I do that and how can I duplicate it in my work as I am drawn to more naturalistic stuff. When you start to get more stylized, you are going into pure creative vein. Um, and I try to pay attention to what's going on out there that other cinematographers are doing and, and the directions they're going. Because our industry, like many others, is based in fashion and trend. We go through cycles. Uh, I've been around long enough to see some of them come back around again. Um, and sometimes it's really what everyone was doing five years ago has to be turned on its head. Sometimes the technology dictates that um, as a very quick example. For years with film and lenses, it was trying to gain more resolution and more sharpness and more clarity. And with digital cameras, all of a sudden they got very sharp and very clean. And so now the younger cinematographers are all obsessed with using the much older lenses to create a softer looking, more organic image. And they wouldn't dare use the more modern lenses on these cameras because it is considered boring. However, certain cinematographers that are very well respected are doing exactly that. So it's a little bit of a dichotomy of what, whose trend do you follow? Um, I am a bit more of a classicist, so I haven't jumped into that one as deeply as others. The interest in trying out every new camera, every possible lens that comes around, you know, hanging, putting, taking prisms and putting them in front of the lens. Um, I did a fair amount of the experimentation stuff back in the day, like the 90s and early 2000s with film. Everywhere. I never, I never baked the film myself. I just someone baked it that you would like allow light to get in the eyepiece and you bring the, open the door to flash the film and things that um, people who are in the film industry have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's essentially trashing the image in creative ways, you know? Um, and I'm a little less inclined to be that experimental these days. Um, most of what I do is comedy. Key & Peele, again, was very special because we were emulating different styles, and I really did get to do things like that if it was that style. A, certainly, most network comedies and streamers, a lot of the ones I work on are not quite as progressive in the visual sense. They are to an extent, but not, not that deeply. Um, the image is not the most important thing. The words and performances are. That was one of my questions, which was, is lighting for comedy wildly different? I mean, lighting and framing, ultimately, for that type of performance, because you always hear comedy happens in the wide. Yeah. That's where the funny is. Uh, that's I don't know if I totally agree. I don't, I, ag I don't agree. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't really, I don't agree with that one, because it's much more of the time it happens in the coverage. Maybe physical comedy would happen in the wide. The jokes will sell in the close-ups. And if it's, uh, especially as it has become more and more popular, if it's improv, the jokes happen in multiple cameras with all the everyone being covered at once so they can go on runs uh, because um, again, for people who aren't that familiar with it, we have, I work in what's called single camera comedy, which is really a bit of a misnomer. It's to uh, differentiate it from sitcoms, which are traditionally multi cameras, uh, you know, three to four cameras at once. Single cam used to be one camera. It became two and now it's often three but we're still doing one setup at a time. We don't have an audience. We're not shooting continuously all the way through the scenes. We, we roam around for different setups. But 
the advantage for that in comedy is that if you got two people facing each other and they're improvising, you get all of them at once. You don't miss out on some genius piece. Uh, it is unfortunately difficult for a cinematographer from a lighting perspective to be able to create uh, the most flattering look or the most interesting look when you see the entire room at once. But as you're saying, the performance is, is king. oftentimes the thing that's key and you get a happy editor even if you get a less than happy cinematographer. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm at a stage of my life where I'm, I, I'm fine with that. I'm okay with it because I work in comedy largely because I like being around the comedic process. Um, I like to, I like how it's crafted and nuanced on set. If something isn't working, we sit there and do it until it's funny. You don't, you don't go, oh, it's not that funny. Let's just move on. And I enjoy being around that. Um, and that kind of balances out for me the fact that I don't maybe get to do things that are quite as interesting visually as I would if I was doing a very deep, dark drama or, you know, something that's more scary or sinister. Um, now, there's a lot of dramedy, on, uh, especially in television now, in the streamers, uh, that mixes this up a lot. And a fair number of people are getting to do this more dramatic look that's paired with comedy. And I'm hoping to get one of those. It's, it's been a while since I've gotten my teeth into one of those. Unlike a writer, like when you're writing something, you're sitting there staring at a blank page. Do you ever feel like you're staring at a blank page as a cinematographer or like, do you run into creative block? Do you run into certain doubts or boredom doing the same thing over and over again? How do you get around that stuff? I think the difference uh, between the, the blank page and I have an understanding of that because I have written it, but I feel like there's a very different situation. Things as a cinematographer, which is you have a script, you have actors, you have characters. Um, a good director is already going to have a sense of how those, they're going to block the characters into the scene. So we, I'm already arriving with a certain amount of framework. Um, even when I sit down with the director ahead of time to talk through this stuff, uh, we, we start to create the little universe in our head, and it's not starting with a blank box. Um, I find it actually difficult to start talking about blocking until I know what the space is. Shooting on location is easy because you, you can see the actual, the way the rooms are laid out. You can see where the windows are and where the good angles are. Stage is a little bit more interesting because you're working off uh, blueprints. And thankfully, now we have virtual walkthroughs. Production designers, when they build something in CAD, we can actually you know, create a perspective on it. But it's still a little bit tricky to truly pre-visualize something um, until you're actually in the room. But at that point, you've got so many of the important building blocks, which is the space and the human beings and where, you know, an idea of where they need to go that much of my work is at that point will fall into place because of that. Now, the way that a cinematographer may be involved in the blocking is if we see something visually that won't really change the intention of the performance, but will create a more interesting shot or place them into a more flattering lighting, or just as importantly in many cases, be a more efficient way to shoot it, um, which is to say less setups slash faster. Um, then, of course, we get involved and make, what if we did this? How would we feel about that? And very often, especially if it's speed-based and it's good, the director will be very pleased about that. Uh, as an example of that, gosh, probably going back, wow, 20 years, I was working on a movie, and we were working at night. It was an overnight. And right before lunch, we started rehearsing a scene with four or five major characters and some background, some sort of minor characters in the background and everyone's talking to each other. 
And as we laid it out, it looked like it was going to be 15 to 20 like, uh, different camera setups. And in a scenario like this, this is a feature that's, you know, each setup probably has a bit of a relight. There's X number of takes. And we were sort of dejected going into lunch going, oh boy, this is going to be a long night, you know? Our lunch, by the way, when you're working nights in a movie set is like midnight, you know? It's the lunch, the meal that falls six hours in a day, we call lunch no matter what. So um, thinking about not just myself, but the whole crew, I said, you know, let, let's sit down and work through this. I have some ideas on how we can combine shots. And then we start talking about it. I'm like, we can put these two shots together. And, oh, and then this third one can get tacked on there if I was to do a little bit like this. And as we start doing, breaking this down and crossing things off, which feels so wonderful and exciting, new ideas start coming up visually. And by the end of lunch, we've cut it down to at least half the work, and it's better, and it's more interesting. And that's, uh, that's a great feeling. And I was just the camera operator on that one. Um, that was, I had, because I had more of a TV background than the DP and the director on that particular project, I was very used to that process of kind of hacking it down to the bare essentials. Because you started off in, in, you were a Steadicam op for a long time, is that right? Yes. I was a Steadicam opera. Do we need to explain what Steadicam is, do you think, or is it household term? Yeah, look it up, guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Because I, yeah, I started with Steadicam when I was 19, um, and that was, a, that was a few decades back, and it was not a household term. So slowly I've had to explain it less and less. But yes, I was a Steadicam operator. The wonderful thing with Steadicam is that you have so much mobility and Things that seem like they're very far apart physically from being able to be connected in a single shot can be brought together with a Steadicam in a way that very few other tools uh, are able to. Now, I have to ask, you worked on West Wing, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, briefly, yeah. As a Steadicam. So are you, are you, am I literally talking to the person who's responsible for the walk and talk? Did you shoot those? I, I did do some walk and talks. I was the third <laughs> operator. Um, nope. Mm -hmm, uh -uh. Second operator on that show. Um, I also did ER, which course was even an earlier iteration of the same idea um i yes i was involved in that golden era of television walk and talks <laughs> um fortunately at a time of life when i was young and robust enough to be able to survive them so i'll tell you it was a lot of work at that point steady cams were in the sort of 60 to 64 pound range and some of those takes were quite long and they did a, a lot of them yeah now they just have gimbals and they throw a little dslr on them and walk around and spin it yeah, you could do it that way. Steadicam is still very much alive and well. Um, and then when you look at the, something like 1917, that was an amazing combination of different tools that we used to shoot that with like a Steadicam with a gimbal on top of it com combined and a, and a gimbal with a Steadicam attached to it, which is a, the opposite <laughs> version of that. So, and a uh, hovercraft and yeah. a jetpack. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and oversized carrots. I don't know what those are. Um, so yeah, the technology has gotten very interesting now. Uh, I'm 10 years out of Steadicam and there's aspects of it and new tools that I have no idea what they're like to operate. Well, so 10 years out from Steadicam, what are you hoping to achieve? Are you where you want to be? Are there projects that you're looking for? What's next? What's the dream? You know, I've, I've, come, into an interesting, I've come to an interesting place 30 years into my career, which is uh, I'm finding that the balance of life is for the first time becoming a consideration. Uh, whereas as a young man in this industry, I was just, I lived and breathed the film industry. And our long hours and the intensity was just all part of the fun. It was getting to do what I love doing. 
So I didn't really care that much. Um, uh, over time, I think it becomes a little bit more of a challenge on your psyche to A, get everything that you need emotionally out of a business that is a very difficult place to be emotionally much of the time. It's kind of like being in a volatile relationship. You know, it's, <laughs> it has its ups, but it sure has its downs. Um, and just the, um, the fatigue factor of working the kind of hours that we do and the intensity that we do. Because there's many times that we go into an adrenaline-fueled mode for a considerable amount of time per day, multiple times a day, which um, I would say that, you know, is a little bit like, uh, you know, when you're young, it's kind of like being a soldier where you're just kind of like going into battle and it's all your adrenaline gets up or maybe, you know, a policeman or something like that. Obviously, there's no danger involved like there is with those jobs, but you have that kind of intensity of the adrenaline starts firing and you're, you know, you're jumping in, into, into foxholes and, uh, you know, firing your gun at the enemy. But uh, as you get older, that same adrenaline burst thing throughout the day really starts to take its toll. You know, you're supposed to become a, a general at that point <laughs> and be making your sort of decisions from, from up in the tower. Yeah, um, sending people into battle. Yeah, sending people into battle, not the guy that's actually, you know, kind of dragging themselves through the mud. So it, um, it's a little bit tricky in our industry that the projects may get bigger, you may get more sophisticated, but the process of making it still remains the same uh, at almost every level. Some, some of the, the bigger shows, like a Clint Eastwood show, or, you know, some of the older directors will mandate a very specific length day, and it's not crazy, and that would be great. Um, but for my balance of life, I really, what I enjoy now, almost more than anything else, is working with great people on a, a, a kind of a project or a property that is enjoyable, that I have respect for, that I find it's a comedy that I find funny, or it's well-written, or it's just a good piece of work. It doesn't have to be the best. It doesn't have to change the world. But it's a good environment to be around. And I'm working with good people, and we're not going nuts. And no one's forcing us to do things in a way that is just stupid. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's a lot of that in, not, uh, in every industry. There's management that people are like, why would you do that? Why do you have such a messed up idea of how to do this? It doesn't have to be like this. Do you find you have influence at this point in your career? You can educate maybe somebody that you're, you, you know, would you stick up for yourself and all, all that kind of stuff? I... That's an excellent question. It depends on the situation and whose mandate that is. It always, always starts with the top. In a TV show, it's the, the showrunner. Um, in a movie, it'd be the producer, potentially the director. And it trickles down from there. Um, I've worked for some people who have really great, smart, uh, humane policies that are just good people, and they want to hire good people to be happy. Let's just be happy at work. Um, we know it's hard. There's times we're going to hate each other and be killing each other just to get it done, but we're still going to like each other at the end of it because it's done in a respectful fashion. And I am in middle management. You know, we have a division, which we call the line in the film industry. There's above the line, which is producers, writers, actors, etc. And below the line is um, the craftspeople. And I'm a department head, which puts me at the top of below the line, along with the production designer and um, the wardrobe, uh, the costume designer, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we oversee our departments. I oversee the camera, grip, and electric department, which could be, you know, potentially a few dozen people, um, sometimes more, sometimes less. And 
the interesting thing for me is sometimes we get into these crazy pressure cookers and I know why they're happening because I'm privy to the inner workings because I've been to the production meetings. I know what the big story is, but often my people don't know why it's happening and we have to go into a scramble mode and it seems a bit arbitrary. I really try to as quickly and easily and subtly as I can inform them. I know this is going to seem crazy. Trust me, there's a reason for it. We'll talk about it later if we need to, but we're not doing it arbitrarily. And that seems to help. Yeah. I think as long as they know that their leader knows the score, then they can get in line. Yeah. Yeah. And they can feel good about it or at least better about it. <laughs> exactly. Better about it. Yeah. Because the, the worst scenario is like, we just rushed our asses off for two hours. Why? Now we're sitting around. What happened? And you, if I said, I know it seems crazy, but something happened unforeseen. It sucks, but you know, it was not intended to be this way. That's an interesting thing to bring up is the fact that in this realm that is generally thought to be the creative side of filmmaking, television, commercial, or any of those types of, of, of video production, film production, there's still management there. There's people skills that are required. You can't just be really great at lighting, really great at framing. You have to actually run your department. That's what people are looking to you for leadership, as well as your artistic and technical skills. And uh, the truth is, is a great department head can really make or break your time on a set. There's no question about it. Yeah, of course. And director and assistant director. And it's, it's really, you know, what it comes down to is, um, and this is, again, part of the creative process. You have your vision, and we're going to hope for this, but you have to be ready to, to, uh, to kill the babies. Uh, <laughs> you have to be able to let go of some of the things. So really, it's about prioritizing and going, we have to have this. This would be great to have. I would love to get that. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, we always have time permits on our call sheets. Um, and there's some days where we're like, there's no way we're going to get to that. Let's put it in there anyway. A miracle could happen. But, um, you know, those are the things that would be like the little grace notes that would just be lovely to have. And when you can get them, boy, is that great. But uh, you can't suffer because you didn't get them. You know, you have to be able to make those compromises and let go and move on. And sometimes diabolical things happen. You know, there's a, a situation that happens that really kills your day and you have to really scramble to go, how can we restructure this? We had a whole plan. Now we have to make an entirely new plan. Uh, that's pretty crazy. And sometimes something great will come of that. I have been in scenarios where that has forced us into actually some really cool ideas where we suddenly do a one or a single shot that combines everything. We're like, Oh, we wouldn't necessarily have thought to do it that way if we weren't under these crazy constraints. Yeah, sometimes the constraints, the challenges, the and just the absolutely bizarre problems that crop up, sometimes those things can spur great ideas, certainly bring a team together. And hopefully you see that stuff on screen. And it kind of goes back to a little bit what we were saying with the old technology, with the four-track task cam, with tape-to-tape -tape video editing and uh, splicing film, is the a certain amount of discipline to have the idea before you actually see it, which is I have to be able to visualize what this will be before I make the decision to do it because reversing it's going to be tough. Um, I do find that I'm working more and more with directors who, when we're prepping and I describe something, they might go, uh, I'm having a hard, I, I can't, I, I can't really visualize. It. I just have to see it. Just show me, which is a little bit tough because I'm like, how do the only way I can direct into thing is by visualizing it. I don't think that's necessarily my gift, but it's what I've done since I was a kid. It's the only thing I know how to do. 
it's a process that seems entirely obvious to me is shooting the movie in my head first. So it's strange for me to imagine how someone can conceive of the rhythm and uh, the construct and the blocking and the pacing without having a vision of that in their head, you know, a, a little pre-movie on it. And what's great about having that is, again, you get pleasantly surprised when uh, an actor takes that ball and runs with it and, get, and turns into performance or they have an idea of how to change it that makes it so much better. So what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to get into cinematography, who's just starting out or considering it? Well, I think, uh, as we talked about earlier, the accessibility of great gear that's very inexpensive, especially if you're looking in the used market for stuff that was, you know, state-of-the-art, low-end gear, I should say, you know, four years ago. It's incredibly affordable right now. And if it comes right down to it, you can use your phone. Um, and many young people are doing that. I mean, look at, you know, TikTok and Snapchat and the Vines before that. Um, I've seen some incredible work that has the sensibility of timing and pacing to, to just put on social media. Um, and that's really cool to see some of the, the really esoteric things about filmmaking is democratizing to the degree that it is. Uh, composition and, uh, and pacing um, in particular. Uh, pacing slash time. So um, I think that this point, getting your hands on any kind of camera and any kind of editing gear, and even if you're not a writer, find something, find a short story, have a, see if your friend's written anything. It's, it's not that hard to source some sort of material, but just get out there and start making. Um, and then just keep making and, you know, decide what you liked about it and then ask other people what they liked and, you know, Go on message boards and have people say what they think. Message boards are almost impossible to, uh, to get <laughs> objective responses, but you might find something useful in there. But I was going to say, getting out there and getting putting your stuff out there is pretty vital. And I think a lot of folks, there are those that put absolutely everything out there. And then there's those that put absolutely nothing out there. Right. If you're putting everything out there, you're just you're blanket, screaming you're through a bombing. bullhorn. You're, yeah, yeah, you're carpet bombing. It's, it, what's the point? And if you're putting nothing out, well, clearly nobody's going to be able to give you any feedback. You're not going to get anything in return. And that's kind of the point of all this stuff. Yeah. And also, you know, it, if we're talking about cinematography, it's a bit of a broad term because content creation, um, there's obviously a phenomenal number of people who are making content, putting it on social media, amassed a huge following are getting quite rich off this and it has nothing to do with the cinematography of what they're doing um overall the production values have improved um over the years because the cameras again are are better and, and the techniques are being passed around um and i see some pretty clever things being done and even just basic hey guys i'm going to show you how to put on foundation today videos are starting to look better and well and they're very helpful if i mean my foundation is going on it looks gorgeous even. it's too bad your, you. your listeners can't actually see how attractive uh, <laughs> you are at this point um i think that uh, that there's this unprecedented time to be able to learn at no cost um by creating and posting all for free and um and seeing how it goes, uh, well, for, you know, for free, of course, there's certain, I should say for very a little low bit cost, of an investment. a little bit, a little bit, you get very inexpensively in comparison. Of course, many new people coming into it will complain about, you know, the $600 camera should be 400 and the, the, <laughs> the $200 light should be 100. I mean, I, you know, 
I throw my hands up. Yeah, the film cameras we used to shoot on were million-dollar cameras. Like, oh, my God. Uh, it's a little painful. But, yeah, I think um, studying what has been done, finding what you like to watch, uh, a TV show, a commercial, a movie, go, I love the way that looks. Um, studying it frame by frame, breaking it down. What works so well here? How do, how do they do that? Analyzing it. Um, lighting is a process that there's a ton of videos now, of course, about lighting. Uh, so many that I think it would be very hard to figure out which are the right ones. But for me, certainly my process was watching it being done as a, as a production assistant. I spent two years on sets studying the lighting and how it was achieved and looking at the light and looking at the effect and looking at what they were doing with the, you know, with the grip gear to, to affect it. So I had, that was really my boot camp, uh, which a lot of people won't have access to. But at the same time, I didn't own the equipment, so I couldn't experiment at home. As, as easily um the you know the ability now especially with digital to set up your camera and your monitor and light something and go what if what if i drop this light a foot what if i made this one brighter and that one less what if i colored it this way and take notes if you can and figure out what works and what doesn't and start to learn those formulas and you know or you know take a, a frame grab or a scene of something that you think is really cool and try to recreate the light because a lot of it becomes a it's detective work. Once you can figure out how someone else did it, then when you get into your own set and you're looking at a situation, you get to use that technique again. And then this day and age, again, when there is so much gear out there that's, that so many people own their own bits and pieces, I think even in a, a small market or you know a semi-rural, even rural area, finding the other people with an interest and going, let's you know i'll help you on your shoot and then you can come help me on mine and you can get these little collaboratives going because very often the tricky part is finding enough bodies to get the job done because you know unlike the example of the you know the painter which one guy it's really hard to make to do it all yourself <laughs> you know it's exhausting it may not have to be anywhere near what you, you know you see working on a big production but you know, you still need a few people. It's always the hard. The sound guy is the hardest part. It is. It's impossible to it, find it's one. Really hard. Um, you know, anytime I do a low budget shoot, um, it, you know, something especially if it's my own project, like I'm directing or something, I'm like, okay, I can, I can put a camera department together for free who'll help out. Nine ways to Sunday. Grip and electric is a little bit harder. Those guys work very hard and get them to come in on a you know on a non working day for free. The advantage I have is I. I put meals on a certain number of guys' tables much of the year, so they'll help me here and there. Sound guy, I'm like, there it is. That's the one we're going to have to spend the money on because <laughs> having learned from experience, the super low-budget, affordable guys, the damage that could be caused. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Get a good sound guy. If they're hard to find. Get them. They'll definitely be helpful. So, Charles, where can people find you? I can be found these days sitting at home, largely, as we're in our little... <laughs> stay-at-home orders but yep. um, my website is charles at papperts.com and my instagram is at charles Papert. plain and simple those are the two best places well thank you so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living it has been a pleasure subscribe to making a living show at apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts follow along at instagram facebook twitter and youtube and if you like what you hear please share the show with someone you know Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.